0: You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.TV. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.TV slash gold. All right, folks, so open up here on the screen for the video viewers over at Payne.TV slash gold. I am at the uh, Technocracy Study Guide, page 242, section 23.4. And this is under Lesson 23, Design and Operation. And this section is called Transportation. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit in here because it's a little bit lengthy. But I'm going to read from some of this because I want you to understand the ideology that goes behind this rental-based economy, this circular economy that the World Economic Forum is talking about. Okay, so the reason why you need to understand this, folks is because this is where you will own nothing and you will be happy comes from. And you should understand this is more than just a meme so you can actually explain it to people what this actually means. It's not just an idea being floated by the World Economic Forum. This is actually going to happen. This is the direction it's going in. It was decided on 100 years ago. So I'm going to bounce around in here a little bit. It says, consider transportation under such a mode of control. Transportation falls naturally into two major classes passenger and freight. Passenger transportation requires, in general, speed, safety, and comfort. Freight transportation may be either fast or slow, depending on the nature of the goods being transported. For passenger transportation, the principal modes of conveyance are rail, water, highway, or air. For freight transportation, there may be added to the above modes of conveyance a fifth pipeline and perhaps a sixth wire. The transmission of energy over a high-tension power line and the shipment of coal by freight car are both direct. Are both different aspects of the same thing, namely the transportation of energy. And then it gets into freight transportation, which we're not going to talk about at this point, folks. All right? So we're going to go down through the freight transportation. It says uh, we're going to passenger. In the matter of passenger transportation, the same criteria would be used in the design and operation of passenger equipment as elsewhere. Trains involving the least energy cost per passenger mile would be operated. It goes without saying that such trains would be the lightest, the most streamlined, and the most efficiently powered that could be built. Whether diesel electric power units mounted on the trains themselves or or whether power derived from stationary central power plants will prove to be the most efficient, and hence the preferred mode of uh, propulsion is still to be determined. Since by far the greater number of passenger miles of transportation are delivered by automobiles operating on public highways, particular significance attaches to this mode of transportation. To appreciate the importance of automobiles in our national economy, one needs only to consider that in 1923 passenger automobiles in the United States had an installed horsepower capacity of approximately 453 million horsepower. All the other prime movers combined at that time were only 231 million horsepower giving a grand total of 684 horsepower of prime movers. By 1929 this grand total reached over 1 billion of installed horsepower with automobiles occupying as great if not greater proportion as in 1923. In 1923 the horsepower capacity of passenger automobiles was 66 percent of the total of all the prime movers in the country. By that year the number of passenger automobiles was about 30 13 million by 1929 this had reached 23 million with the horsepower per automobile increasing simultaneously you see i told you they have it all figured out folks this is it all their formulas everything in the world will be run by science and engineering this is technocracy why do you think they have the chips in all the cars the computers in the cars these ev cars why do you think they want the ability to turn your car on and off it says now getting back to load factors We have already remarked that the average load factor of all automobiles is only about 5%. This means, then, that at the present, we have approximately 800 million installed horsepower in passenger automobiles alone, which are operating only about 5% of the time. Or it means that if we could step this load factor up to 50% or 10 times what it is now, (coughs) we could obtain the same number of passenger miles with one-tenth of the automobiles now in operation. There is a corresponding problem involved in the design and servicing of automotive vehicles. Today, there are about two dozen separate makes of automobiles being built in the United States. This means that as many different factories have to operate and that a corresponding number of complete systems of garages and service stations must be maintained. The factors that are uppermost in present-day automotive design are those of flashy appearance and other uh, super... that make for ready sales while it is a carefully seen to that the wearing qualities are kept low enough to ensure a quick turnover because of the short life of the product to this end all sorts of fake devices are used the latest of which is fake streamlining in the matter of fuel efficiency by far the most efficient type of internal combustion engine is the diesel which operates on fuel oil or distillate Although automobile and airplane diesels have long since been proven to entirely, uh, entirely practical, they have for a number of years past been carefully withheld from use in automobiles. There is, however, a limit to the extent to which so fundamental and advances diesel engines can be withheld. And now, at last, the dam has broken. In trucks, tractors, and buses, diesels have been coming in at a very rapid and accelerating rate during the past two years. And now one manufacturer announces a diesel motor as an optional choice in an automobile. While it is true that a part of the phenomenally low cost of diesel operation at present is the low cost of fuel oil and that as the demand for this increases, the monetary price will rise. The fact still remains, however, that diesels do the same work for fewer gallons of fuel than any other engines in existence. All right, so let me just stop there for a second. See how they have all this stuff figured out? This is why I'm telling you, when you see you will own nothing and you will be happy in a meme that comes out of World Economic Forum, there is an entire ideology that was well thought out by the scientists and engineers before that little meme came 100 years later from the World Economic Forum. So, I'm going to continue with this because we're going to get to the part that you need to hear. It says, under an energy uh, criterion, it follows that all automotive vehicles would be powered with the most efficient prime movers that could be designed, high-speed diesels, unless and until something better can be devised. The same considerations would apply to all the various trick devices for ensuring rapid obsolescence and turnover in vogue today. To care for these and other defects of the function of automotive transportation necessities a complete revision from the ground up consequently to improve the load factor it will be necessary to put all automobiles under a unified control system whereby they are manufactured service and superintended by the automotive branch of the transportation sequence all right so they're going to put all the cars under this department controlled by the technate It says, this means in the first place that there would be only one basic design of automobile. That is, all automobiles that were built would have interchangeable parts, such as motors, wheels, chassis, springs, etc., except insofar as they differed in those elements of design, fitting them for different uses. In these minor differences, there would be as many different varieties as there were uses, such as two-passenger and five-passenger capacity, light trucks, and similar variations. It goes without saying that in a accordance with our uh uh, sorry it's broken up here criterion of last energy cost the cars would be really streamlined which would require that the engine be placed in the rear rather than the front they would be powered with the most efficient power unit that could be devised see so they're going to take over control of the cars there'll be no more unique cars everything will be exactly the same all controlled by the government by the state by the technate. It says, as regards use of the automobiles, the change of administration would be even more profound. Whereas at the present time, one buys an expensive automobile and leaves it parked the greater part of the time in front of his house as evidence of conspicuous consumption. The automobiles that we are speaking of would have to be kept in operation. The automobiles, that uh, this would be accomplished by instituting what would resemble a national drive-it-yourself system the automotive branch of transportation would provide a network of garages at convenient places all over the country from which automobiles could be had at any hour of the night or day no automobiles would be privately owned when one wished to use an automobile he would merely call at the garage let's see present his driver's license and a car of the type needed would be assigned to him. When he was through with the car, he would return it either to the same garage or to any other garage that happened to be convenient and surrender his energy certificates and payment for the cost incurred while he was using it. You see that? So now the government, the state, the techne takes over and they own and control all the cars and you just rent the car from the state. Now, we know there's variations of this that have been tested over time, right? You have enterprise, you have budget rental car services, and then you had these companies like Zip where you'd go pick up a car that was parked in a garage. And you use it. It was like a gig app of cars. So they had all this thought out back 100 years ago. It says, the details of this cost accounting for automotive transportation are significant. The individual no longer pays for the upkeep of the car or for its fueling or servicing. All this is done by the automotive branch of the division of transportation. That's part of the technique. In this manner, a complete performance and cost record of every automotive vehicle is kept from the time it leaves the factory until the time when it is finally scrapped and the metal that it contains is returned to the factory for refabrication. In this manner, the exact energy cost per mile car for the automotive transportation of the entire country is known at all times. Similar information is available on the length of life of automobiles and of tires. With such information in the hands of the research staff, it becomes very, very definite as to which of various designs is the superior or the inferior in terms of physical cost per mile per car. The total cost of automotive transportation includes, of course, the cost of manufacturing the automobile. If, for instance, the average life of an automobile were 300,000 miles, the total cost for these 300,000 miles would be the cost of manufacturing the automobile plus its total cost of operation and maintenance during its period of service. The average cost per mile, therefore, would be this total cost, including the cost of manufacture, divided by the total distance traveled, in this case, 300,000 miles. Now listen that might sound like a good program for you but at the end of the day when you go to rent a car and the government tells you you can't or there isn't one or let's say this folks, let's say they figured out a model where you buy an electric car or any kind of car, and it's parked at your... Let's say they take all gas cars off the road, make it illegal, and then there's all the EV cars, and we know they can only build a small percentage of the EV cars that are needed. Those would then go into this government fleet. Or... Or you would have one, but they would limit your ability to use it because they would turn the computer off and they'd tie this into your CBDC or your UBI, your carbon credit energy certificates, and they'd shut your car off so that you can't drive it, folks. See how this works? Let's just continue. It says, where there are millions of automobiles involved, the same type of computation is used. In this case, the average cost per mile would be the average cost for the millions of cars instead of for only one. This would be the total cost of manufacture, operation, and maintenance of all automobiles of a given kind divided by the total miles of service rendered by these cars. Since automotive costs can best be kept... Uh, low by maintaining high operating load factors, it becomes necessary that all automobiles be kept as a continuous operation, as is practical. In other words, automobiles when away from the garages should be in operation and not parked uh, ostentatiously in front of somebody's house. This can be taken care of rather efficiently by charging the individual for the use of automobile on a mileage-time basis as follows. One, if while the automobile is out it's, uh, uh, is out its operation has been maintained at a rate equal to or greater than the national load factor of all automobiles charge is made on a mileage basis only. Two, if the load factor of the car while out is not kept equal to the average load factor, the charge is made on the basis of the number of miles that the car would have traveled during that time had it operated at a rate equal to the average national load factor for automobiles. So since they're trying to constantly keep everything operating 20 20- 24-7, you will be penalized if you rent that car for two hours, but you don't drive 100 miles or 50 miles or whatever they deem to be the average uh, of operating that vehicle at the highest rate possible. So you will be charged, you will be penalized for not using that car for the fullest extent. It says, suppose, for instance, that the average national load factor for all automobiles were such that each car traveled on the average 240 miles each 24 hours, or an average of 10 miles per hour. Now, if a person had an automobile out and he used it an average of 10 miles or more per hour, he would be charged for mileage only. If, however, he kept the car 24 hours and only drove it 30 miles, he would be charged for 240 miles, for that is the distance the car should have traveled in 24 hours hours the simple provision uh, proviso has the dual effect of improving the load factor of all automobiles and at the same time reducing the average cost per mile by making the delinquents pay for keeping automobiles out of service you see that you see how everything is figured out, folks, and you're being penalized if you don't fit in to the norm, and the norm is based on maximum efficiency of the use of energy and the use of the machines, and you will be penalized if you do not comply with this, folks. Unbelievable, is it not? Now you can see. You will own nothing, and you will be Happy? No, I think it's you will own nothing and you will be charged out your ass if you don't comply with the technate, with the state, with these prison planet wardens, folks. Now, these are not just bumper sticker slogans. You have the truth. You have the facts. You're armed with the information that goes behind everything we've been talking about. These are where the ideas come from. This is where this stuff was written about, where it was decided on. This is it, folks. It was birthed out of these documents from Technocracy Incorporated, growing out of Columbia University. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. More listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.TV. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. You are listening to Payne.TV slash gold. All right, folks, I was deciding over the quick break. So, you know, when when I do these breaks, because on the public side, they have to stick in the ads. I mean, that's how we keep the lights on here. But I do these breaks, and I have like a sixty-second 60 clock in there, and it gives me a chance to check my notes, flip through my resources, take a sip of tea, and decide what I want to do next. So as we're getting to the end here and wrapping up, I decided I don't want to get into the circular economy. Uh, that comes out of this new school of thought, and it really brings to fruition what they talked about going back a hundred years ago. So I'm going to open up the next episode 85 with the circular economy, and then I'm going to get into a A little bit of the history of technocracy from 1919 to 1933. I just want to show you the uh, beginnings of technocracy Incorporated, just so you understand some of the players behind it, because it's philosophers and authors and economists and scientists and engineers. And as you learn tonight, that they went out there and they really pumped this ideology into the mainstream, and you can understand how we've come to adopt this, a system of social control, social engineering by the scientists and the engineers and the technologists. That's all we see in the works today. They just were successful with all of that. So what I want to do now because you understand the, you will own nothing, and you will be happy, and where that comes from, and how everything inside this technique, going back a hundred years ago, was all about this rental system. I just want to show you something that is near and dear to my heart. It relates to this. It's not going to be a direct tie-in, but I told you I had to do gig work. I was working mainly for Instacart uh, between my divorce time and COVID land, the high school theater production. And my ex-wife and I had a fairly successful uh, photography studio in Nashville, Tennessee. And then had to shut down in the early parts of COVID. And it really got hurt because people were afraid to come in and get their pictures taken because they might get COVID. And so I ended up having to do gig work. And then uh, I continued it until my divorce was over. And so I still run into a lot of people in gig work. I tried to make them aware of this. I've warned people on Mike Payne's show going back a couple of years. I've warned people on my show that it's a trap. They're driving people into the gig economy, and they're able to throttle them and regulate how much money they make they're able to stop them like you know i I was at a point in this area i could make four hundred dollars a day people i know now are going out there they're making eighty dollars in a day so i go on the national facebook groups and i take a look sometimes and see people posting and everybody across the country is hurting so you'll have people here they don't check the groups you'll hear them talking and they're sitting there saying you yeah, know, this is crazy. Why is it a dead day today? And I'm like, well, apparently it's a dead day out in Los Angeles, California, too. No, what's happening is they are now regulating people's ability to make money. They've trapped them inside of this system. These people are inside one of the ghettos built inside the Technate. That's all it is, folks. So right now up on the screen, I have Klaus Schwab's book from 2016. I've referenced it a lot on this show. It's called The False Industrial Webolution. But I just want to read you a piece from it so people understand that this isn't happening by happenstance, folks. This is all planned. It's all planned. Uh, all of it grows out of Technocracy Incorporated and the original blueprints, and then it is transformed and put into modern day. But this is written in 2016, Section 3.1.3, The Nature of Work. So if you're in gig work or you know someone in gig work, You know, now you'll understand what is happening to you. And this was all decided on in 2016. I mean, earlier than that. But when Klaus Schwab wrote this book, this was disseminated amongst all of the business leaders and everyone inside the current technocracy uh, in the leadership, the prison planet warden infrastructure. It says the emergence of a world where the dominant work paradigm is a series of transactions between a worker and a company More than an enduring relationship was described by Daniel Pink 15 years ago in his book, Free Agent Nation. This trend has been greatly accelerated by technological innovation. Today, the on-demand economy is fundamentally altering our relationship with work and the social fabric in which it is embedded. More employers are using the, quote, human cloud, end quote, to get things done. I told you, that's what he calls gig work, the human cloud. Professional activities are dissected into precise assignments and discrete projects and then thrown into virtual cloud of aspiring workers located anywhere in the world. This is the new on-demand economy, where providers of labor are no longer employees in the traditional sense, but rather independent workers who perform specific tasks. And I told you, it's very dangerous. Because whether you're in labor work or whether you're in creative work, you're doing your uh, sales through Etsy or through Fiverr.com, you're putting all of your work and your ability to earn money, uh, revenue, to put food on the table inside of your home on the technocrats because they can throttle you and they could turn you off at any point. You're not really building a book of business, local clients that you sell directly to. You're relying on the technocrats to bring you clients. If they can bring you clients, they can take them away. What the technocracy giveth, the technocracy can taketh away, folks. As Aaron uh sundar professor at the stern school of business at new york university put in a new york times column by journalist farhad manju quote we may end up with a future in which a fraction of the workforce will do a portfolio of things to generate an income you can be an uber driver an instacart shopper an airbnb host and a task rabbit end quote yeah you're just it's called the hustle it is it's a hustle it goes on, and you're hustling and breaking your balls and working hard. These are not lazy people, folks. A lot of them got trapped in this. Most of the ones I know are very, very hard workers. They dedicate their life to this. They're addicted to it actually because there's so much gamification inside of these apps. They are really the guinea pigs for, I think, what's going to be the CBDC UBI system. But it says the advantages for companies and particularly fast-growing startups in the digital economy are clear. As human cloud platforms classify workers as self employed, they are, for the moment, free of the requirement to pay minimum wages, employer taxes, and social benefits. As explained by Daniel Callahan, Chief Executive of MBA and company in the UK in a Financial Times article, quote, you could now get whoever you want, whenever you want, exactly how you want. And because they're not employees, you don't have to deal with employment hassles and regulations, end quote. Yeah, it's called the slave system. Again, because these people are supposedly self-contractors, but you're not building a book of business. You have nothing other than what you might have saved when Instacart cuts you off. You have nothing. You don't have clients you can go to. It's not like your boss fired you and then you go, screw you, pal, I'm going to go start my own consulting business in the same area you're not you don't do that because you don't have clients instacart just sends you the gig you do the job you drop it off it's over For the people who are in the cloud, the main advantages reside in the freedom to work or not and the unrivaled mobility that they enjoy by belonging to a global virtual network. Some independent workers see this as offering the ideal combination of a lot of freedom, less stress, and greater job satisfaction. Although the human cloud is in its infancy, there is already substantial anecdotal evidence that it entails silent offshoring silent because human cloud platforms are not listed and do not have to disclose their data. Is this the beginning of a new and flexible work revolution that will empower any individual who has an internet connection and that will eliminate the shortage of skills? Or will it trigger the onset of an inexorable race to the bottom in a world of unregulated virtual sweatshops? If the result is the latter, the sweatshops, a world of precariat, a social class of workers who move from task to task to make ends meet while suffering a loss of labor rights, bargaining rights and job security, would this create a potent source of social unrest and political instability? Finally, could the development of the human cloud merely accelerate the automation of human jobs? So what old Klaus is talking about here is will it create a scenario where the Overseers of the technocratic system take such advantage of the people that they will rise up social unrest. They will come out and start fighting. You know, will it backfire on us or is it going to accelerate human automation? You know, the automation of human jobs, basically robots and self-driving cars, which is eventually where they'd love to go with this. It goes on to say, the challenge we face is to come up with new forms of social and employment contracts that suit the changing workforce and the evolving nature of work. We must limit the downside of the human cloud in terms of possible exploitation, while neither curtailing the growth of the labor market, nor preventing people from working in the manner they choose. If we are unable to do this, the fourth industrial revolution could lead to the dark side of the future of work, which Linda Gratton, a professor of management practice at London Business School, describes in her book, The Shift, The Future of Work, Is Already Here, Increasing Levels of Fragmentation, Isolation, and Exclusion Across Societies. And as Klaus says, as I state throughout this book, the choice is ours. It entirely depends on the policy institutional decisions we make. One has to be aware, however, that a regulatory backlash could happen, thereby reasserting the power of the policy makers in the process and straining the adaptive forces of a complex system. And so he lays out their options to run a digital sweatshop slave state or to create some kind of balance. And so you're starting to see regulations being talked about now, basically forcing the tech companies to turn the people into employees, which frankly, that's a giant trap as well. Because what'll end up happening is then they will limit these folks. Uh, Most of them, like me, I would go out there from five o'clock in the morning and work until about eight o'clock at night. I was in the middle of a divorce. I didn't have kids, nothing to worry about. So I figured I was rebuilding. I told my ex to keep everything. And so I figure while it was going on, I'll save up some money. And so I go out there and I work all the time. Well, if they force them to take them on as employees, then those people are going to be shut out to less than 32 hours, just like a lot of companies did under Obamacare. So it creates another set of problems. Then these people are stuck in the gig world, but they don't even have the illusion they can make a lot of money because they're going to be regulated on the amount of hours they could work. I mean, it's pretty obvious what's going on. But the important part you need to pull from this is that, one, this is a form of the technocracy, controlling the workforce, controlling the hours, controlling all of that stuff from the level of the tech not from the level of independent mom and pop companies. That's what you're seeing here. But listen to what Klaus says in the close of this chapter. One has to be aware, however, that a regulatory backlash could happen. All right. That's what he's talking about. So if you take advantage, he's telling the technates, the technocrats, if they take advantage of the people too much, there could be a regulatory backlash. This is what John and I were talking about. There's uh, road bumps. I mean, speed bumps, roadblocks, hiccups in this system. Right. So but listen to what it says after the comma here, thereby uh, reasserting the power of policymakers in the process and straining adaptive forces of a complex system. The complex system is the technate, (laughs) And what it's saying is, thereby, so if we take advantage too much and there's a regulatory backlash, we are reasserting the power of policymakers in the process, meaning then these politicians that you know damn well that – Howard Scott did not want a round, all right? They did not want politicians. We could now regain power by looking like the populace standing up to protect the people, therefore, taking some of the power away from the unelected technocrats. You see, so there is somewhat of a power struggle behind the decaying system, the illusion of parliamentary system or a constitutional republic, and the scientists and engineers. The scientists and engineers are running their play. For From the outside, really from the inside, in the bureaucracy, from the fact that they're government partners, but they don't want these puppets, these politicians, to reassert any power and put any kinks in their system. You see, they don't want to have any... Uh, straining of the adaptive forces of this complex technique they are in the process of building it they are trying to get it into full blown action and so they don't need any problems so what he's doing is he's warning them don't take too much of an advantage of these idiots these useless humans you have out there running around inside the human cloud because if you do some of these politicians may try to step in and reassert their power looking like they're protecting the people and that could end up being a speed bump on the road road to the full blown Tech Nate. All right, everybody. Hope you had a wonderful election day. I hope your guy, your lady, your trans person, whatever it may be, your non-binary candidate, whatever it was, won the election. So that in two weeks from now, you could see them vote for the first time, realize that you hate them, bitch and moan about it, and then say you're going to work for the next two years to throw the traitor out of office. Remember, these people are not traitors. They are not backstabbers, they are not sellouts, they are not Trojan horses. They are what they are, you voted for them, you put them in the power, you actually exerted energy, you would have been charged to go to the polling place under the technocracy, you exerted energy to go and vote for someone who was a liar, a criminal, a thief a hijacker, a pirate, and a gutter snipe right up front, you assumed or you wanted to believe they were a good person. So then when they backstab you, you call it backstabbing, when in fact what they were doing was front stabbing you because they told you they were going to stab you the day that they declared their candidacy to go work inside of the government. That's how you know they're a horrible terrible, filthy person. So, ladies and gentlemen, have a great election day. I am Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion...